Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nathan Sager. Today, we welcome our first guest from London. Yeah, just down the 401, eh? London, England. Oh, London. Sorry. <laughs> yes, Nate. Joining us is Suzanne Rack, also known as Susie. She is the women's football correspondent for The Guardian. Rack's debut book, A Woman's Game, The Rise, Fall, and Rise Again of Women's Football from Guardian Books and Faber Books, was published in June. Boxing Day, December 26th, is a celebrated day on the calendar for English Premier League fans. Perhaps like United States Thanksgiving is for fans of the National Football League. Imagine now a Boxing Day where over 50,000 fans of football, the fast-kicking, low-scored, and ties, you betcha version, filed into a stadium to watch a women's game. You know, you might think this is something that's a recent phenomenon. As our guest, uh, Suzanne Rack, describes in her narrative, though this scene would not necessarily be from last year, 2021. Rather, try 20, 1920. Just more than a century ago, in post-world of England, women's football, whoa so, had was having a moment. It had created such a groundswell that a match between the Dick Kerr ladies' side and St. Helens at Goodison Park, the home stadium of Everton FC, drew a crowd of 53,000 mid-five figures. Now, the beats of that story, how that all came to be, the way it was built up, if, if we may, probably cross-references to a league of their own, different national game, baseball, on the other side of the Atlantic in Second World War era North America, stretching that out since there were, few, were a few Canadians who played, played in that league, as anyone who's watched the TV version knows. During the First World War in, in England and elsewhere, working women who took factory jobs, so-called non-traditional roles since the men were off to war, often played football on their lunch breaks for physical fitness and camaraderie, and that begat teams being organized as they tried to keep up morale and have a welcome discretion for the terrible war. And then what happened after the war? Well, Whenever there is progress, there is often backlash. As Rack writes, the Dick Kerr ladies team and other squads were rather prolific at fundraising for charitable causes. Now, that served a purpose in wartime and just after wartime. But afterward, the money that their games raised, the causes it went to, especially, say, when they played in mining towns to raise funds for striking miners, it ended up, as she puts it, going to causes that they did not support, they being the Football Association's highest ups. And within 12 months of that Boxing Day game at Goodison Park in front of 53,000 fans, the Football Association, in its infinite wisdom, banned women from playing on their sanctioned fields in England. Just, you can't play anymore. Not here. Now, that didn't mean they stopped playing necessarily, but that's definitely, as, uh, that's definitely a huge setback, to put it mildly, for effect. But talk about irony. The World War created the opportunity for women to show how they could participate in the economy 
and show they could play the game and play and draw a big crowd. But in peacetime, that became a threat, and suddenly an ugly revanchism won the day. And I'm sure many listeners can find parallels to that in our present time. But keeping this on the book, uh, Susie Rack has really done readers a solid with her popular history of 140 plus years of women's football, not just in you know the United Kingdom, not just in Europe, but also you know building in progress in North America, with a focus on the United States and some mention of our reigning Olympic gold medalist, Canadian women's team, <laughs> Neil. Yes, Nate, uh, Suzanne, Susie uh, does well to bring the roots of the women's game to the forefront, as you mentioned. And as it pertains to England, there's documentation of the first formal women's match dating back to 1881. Now, keep in mind, the English first division was formed in 1888. And that um, first formal women's match was um, a friendly, if you want to call it that, played between England and Scotland in Edinburgh. And if you really want to go deep, there are ancient origins of women playing a a soccer-like sport going back to 206 BC in China, and I think it's the Han Dynasty, uh, in the game of Kuju. So bringing it back to the 20th century, she shows how this game has evolved through the waves of feminism and progressed. And it would be really easy for us to think, especially in North America, that women's soccer's ups and downs are a recent phenomenon that happened in our lifetime. Hey, it struggled to break through, and now it has a head of steam, and it can gain a strong foothold backed by fan and corporate support. Yeah, that's part of it, but it goes much further back. Uh, When you hear the recent announcement from former national team member and two-time Olympic medalist Diana Matheson, who was in the initial stages of trying to get a women's domestic league started in Canada, and pair it with what you read in Rack's narrative, it gets you thinking. You can go back almost 150 years to find the people with influence, such as theater magnate Charles Scholes, along with George Frederick Charles and Alec Gordon, who had a vision of earning money off women's soccer. But then it stopped in its tracks in 1920 with the Football Association, or FA, ban. Why then? Well, that's something we're going to get into with Suzanne, or Susie. And it appears to be a mix of things, including classism, protectionism, They didn't like where the allotment of gate receipts were going. But why not just then bring the women's league into the fold and make money together? Good question. They were unaffiliated, too. The women's league had no governing body like the FA. Remember, this is eight years before the suffrage movement allowed the women women the right to vote, which I thought was a loose connection as well. Uh, Of course, maintaining social norms appears to be just part of this whole ban to keep women out of soccer. Perhaps, though, it's making, uh, you know, it's masking this lack of foresight by the FA. Regardless, in contemporary times, the question really seems to come down to can the women's game make money? And that goes for any women's league. And, well, as with anything, no one will know until, you know, there's really some effort put into it, right, Neil? Uh, I think the general understanding among, you know, us, uh, you know, sports likers has moved on to recognizing that. You know, getting, you know, emotionally invested in women's World Cups and the Olympics, is that's just a beginning. You know, the next step is, you know, that's the, cl- the country part, but you need the club part. And that next step is the build out of full-time female pro leagues and, you know, as many major team sports as possible. Of course, the age-old question is, do you do that within the existing infrastructure of, of men's pro leagues that have been around for a century where they're used to doing certain things a certain way. We 
certainly see that in you know England and Europe, where you know m- many of our top Canadian players, you know, like Kadisha Buchanan plays for Chelsea. You know, uh, is, is that the way to go? We see that in North that model in North America in basketball with the WNBA, if not in Toronto. Seriously, get on that MLSC. Uh, but we also see you know efforts to do it independently in, in the case of the National Women's Soccer League, maybe perhaps soon in the case of this uh, new Canadian league. Uh, you know, speaking of, by the way, of, of how well the NWSL is doing with that. Well, we were actually researching and recording Angel City FC. That's the team that Natalie Portman invested in. Uh, their co-founder and president, Julie Ehrman, and co-founder lead investor, Alexis Ohanian, you know, the Reddit guy who is the, you know, you know, Mr. Serena Williams. They were actually named uh, Sports Builders of the Year by Sports uh, Business Journal. So any, either way, either way you do it, it you know, there's going to have to be that marketing oomph and, and uh, to be sustainable. I mean, why is the NFL, you know, the number one sports league in North America? It isn't because that many people appreciate a well-drawn up pass play the way we do neil uh <laughs> it's uh it's because they well the way the way they stage their games uh and you know if it's whether it's we're talking about a, a canadian women's soccer league or a north american hockey league that it's going to need mark that marketing up but just it's not just going to get over simply due to people being willing to give it a chance and and look with the right set of eyes and, you know, see the skill and the, and the desire of these sports women. It has to look like something that's big time. And of course that includes the media culture around it with writers and, and commentators such as uh, Susie Rack, who are giving it that big time treatment, which will include writing critically because in order for an order, it isn't to grow. It does have to uh, be exposed to light. Anyway, most uh, sports obsessives, we can probably quote chapter and verse about different coordinated efforts to uh, limit female participation in sports and the, and the pioneers, you know, you know, whether it was like someone like Justine Blaney or Ab Hoffman in, ho- in, in youth hockey in Canada, taking it on. We, we know about the labels, unladylike, too physical, too strenuous that stuck around. I mean, it was only 2010 that our, this country hosted a the last Winter Olympics without women ski jumping in it. Uh, but now, of course, you know, I think that kind of sexism is is gone by the wayside. Now it's, again, as, we allude, as Neil alluded to, the money the money piece of it. But uh, definitely the, the culture has moved on to it. I mean, here in Canada, during the Men's World Cup that's been going on, there's been a commercial and steady rotation where you see national teams players from the women's and men's teams doing training drills together, and it just looks like the way it should be. You know, it's a statement without even trying to make a statement because it's just reflecting the reality well Susie definitely does try to make a statement with this book and the major thread in the book is the FA's relationship with women's soccer and of course the history Susie also covers uh, the developments and trials of neighboring European soccer countries um, in regards to women in the beautiful game she also touches on the men's game and the and U.S. Title IX rule and the U.S. Title IX ruling and how that fueled the sport to its current state and that current state, in her view, is at a critical juncture. We are happy to have her join us today to explain where the game came from, where it's going, and how she would like to see it look when it's finally there. And we're back with Susie Rack. Susie, thank you so much for joining us. And as you told us, you're in London tonight, aren't you? 
I am, yeah, I live in London, so I'm here most of the time when I'm not travelling around to games up and down the country. Uh, and it's currently about 10 centimetres of snow, so a bit Wow. Big- more that that now you you we're you're you're taking a bit of our weather over exactly. there I yeah, guess we've stolen some um, except we can't cope with it like the whole country uh-huh. grinds to a halt when there's like a centimeter or so let alone ten <laughs> well you know what um, I'm gonna I'm gonna start off by by asking you first of all congratulations on the book um, and in reading this book I learned that women's soccer had a breakthrough you know over a century ago I wasn't aware of that. Um, so why was women's soccer banned by the FA when there was so much popular momentum behind it around 19 or in 1920? Yeah, that's a, uh, thank you, um, for the praise for the book. It's always nice to hear. Um, you know, it's, uh, there's a couple of reasons it was banned. Um, the first was that it was, it was really gaining a lot of popularity. Um, you know, there were 53,000 people that watched, uh, Dick Kerr ladies at sort of the peak of, um, of the of the women's game in the 1920s at Goodison Park, and that was um, really as a result of the the war and you know kind of all of the male players going and joining the war effort. So women flooded into factories and you know and workplaces to replace the all of, all of the men that had gone off to fight, and they also filled the football teams too. So you had this big boost in um, in women's football because of that. You know it's good for morale to have women playing football when they were in the factories it was good for fitness and health and things like that so it wasn't necessarily seen as a bad thing in the way that it maybe was before and so then when men come back from the war you've suddenly got this situation where they're going back into the jobs women are going back into the kitchens the the way society looks at women is a little little different you know it's sort Mm -hmm. of regressed a bit um so you've got a little bit of a you know sort of anti-women being sporting and active uh, view in society generally. Then you've got the fact that you had these women raising huge, huge sums of money for charities, and it was mainly for the war wounded initially, um, and you know, sort of war hospitals and things like that. But once uh, once the war was over, they were sort of looking for other other things to kind of give their money to and to to play these charity matches for, and they started doing it for causes local to them. So a lot of them were from you know mining communities and so when there was a you know miner strike and things like that they would um donate the money to the miners families and their wives and their, their, their you know the the people struggling whilst they're on strike their neighbors their friends their families um and that was not liked by the authorities both footballing and political um because it was you know, a load of money around women's football that the FA and the government had no control over. It was supporting causes that they didn't back. They didn't like the politicisation of, of it. Um, and the FA in particular didn't like that they had no control over this money. You know, they're used to controlling the money of the men's game and having a say on where that goes. And the, because the women's game had sort of started organically, it was running outside the FA's remit. So there was all this money banding around that wasn't going into men's football wasn't going into their pockets and they didn't like it. So they come up with this reason, which is it's unsuitable for women to be playing. They get a load of doctors to sort of rock out and say that it's completely uh, inappropriate for the uh, physiology of a woman to be playing um, and eventually decide that women have got to be banned from all FA-associated grounds. So they can't obviously ban any woman from playing football. You know, they can't ban a woman from going to the park for football, but they basically say... 
it's not going to be in any official capacity. It's not going to be allowed to be played on any ground associated with any FA-affiliated club. Um, we can't have FA-affiliated referees. And so you basically push it into complete amateurism and into parks and things like that and completely shrink those crowd sizes um, and basically put it on a path to um, slowly, slowly shrinking away is it's, it's what happened. Um, so it's, it's something that not many people know. Um, I think that's changed a little bit because there's been a few in England, documentaries around the Ditka ladies who were the biggest team of the time and some of the teams around them. There's been a couple of books written. There's been um, you know, a few radio programmes and things like that. Obviously, my book helps too, um, to really highlight the fact that actually, you know, the kind of boom we're seeing of women's football now isn't new. And if anything, it's the game sort of clawing back on 100 years of uh, of regression at the uh, at the hands of the the fa um and, and other fa's in a lot of other countries who also banned banned the game too right i mean that i was going to ask you about that next but i mean is this a lack of foresight really in on the fa because you would think that they they could okay they're, they're not controlling the money that's a big part of this right and then they drum up some reasons with these doctors um you know rooted in sexism but why didn't they just kind of take ownership and then make make that money themselves uh from the women's game and that's why i think it's twofold is that like you've got that aspect of it but then you do have you know the fa is all men um at that stage it's um you know the the way society has shifted against women in the post-war period is significant because you know you had all these women going into workplace feeling empowered feeling like they um you know could build a life without without a man they didn't have to have a husband anymore you know you could mm. you could be divorced you could run your own household you could um bring be a breadwinner too you know it wasn't that you you stay at home you have your husband they bring home the wage they manage all the money and you just keep home and and so you had this liberated um generation of women um and then after the war when the men come back the the whole narrative shifts because the government and all gov governments suddenly have to find work for this this um, massive of male soldiers that have gone and fought for them. So they've got to clear the women out of the workplace. They've got to get the men back into their jobs and earning money. There's a big desire for uh, for the working classes to um, benefit from the <laughs> the, the mm. country in the post-war period and to be rewarded for the fact that they went and fought for their country uh, and and gave a lot and lost family members and um you know kind of <laughs> were affected health-wise and relationship-wise and all these things and suddenly they want society to give back to them so the governments have to clear the women back out of the workforce and as a part of that you've got this sort of big like almost like campaign against the idea of women being you know, in the um, in the workplaces and um, and having this this these new freedoms that have been afforded to them during the war, and sport is included in that. And the FA is not immune to those those um, like sort of societal shifts either. So you've got you know an FA that is very much like everyone at that time um, being told that women don't belong in these physical manual scenarios um and so i think there is an ideological aspect there an anti 
women playing sport aspect alongside the fact that well there's this money we can't control so i don't i think you know the big part of it is they did not want women playing football so the, the idea of them then kind of just taking it over and controlling it would would take care of the money side but but it, it it wouldn't take care of the fact that they don't at this stage think women should be playing and they're trying to find a way to say no this isn't suitable because that is the narrative of the time i guess and Susie, how is that clawing back and, you know, taking back the women's soccer, how has that moved somewhat in concert with feminist movements at various points in the last, I guess, cent century, Th thinking of here like during second wave feminism or maybe in the last half decade since Me Too? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it totally goes hand in hand in that, you know, nothing, is, nothing exists in isolation of anything else in society right so like football as much as sometimes particularly the men's game likes to think it does does not exist in a bubble it's affected by everything in the same way um that, that everything else is so you know you look at the men's game and coronavirus and um how the pandemic impacted men's football and like caused it a lot of sort of um i suppose existential crises as whether it should still play whilst you've got you know schools being shut and things like that and uh, and suddenly football and the footballing authorities and clubs realizing wait a minute no we we, we exist as a part of this world and um it's not going to go down well if we if we keep playing whilst um whilst everyone else is being able to uh, uh, is being told to stay at home and things like that so you get these moments in time where where football is reminded that actually it does it does exist within within the the normal world um and yeah women's football sort of throughout history has kind of grown and developed along with broader movements for women like we talked about a minute ago that fact that art in the post-war period attitudes towards women generally took a backward step and so did women's football and went hand in hand and it's the same the other way you know you see the me too movement in uh in, in more recent years generally in society and around uh the film industry and things like that and at the same time you've got you know the kind of um huge uh movements in football the afghanistan women's national team uh, exposing their abuse at the hands of the president of the federation you've got all the nwsl players speaking out about um, abusive coaches in emotional, physical, sexual abuse um, over a number of years. Um, you've got Argentinian players talking about the abuse of the, uh, a, a youth team coach and things like that. And, um, and and these things all go hand in hand. They, they you know, it, society generally at the moment is a safer space for women to be able to speak out and say this is wrong. And so you get that happening in football too because it exists in the same space. So when you've got you know, real successful moments for women as well. That's when the game has taken leaps forwards too. Um, you know, the more progressive attitudes have become towards women, the easier it's been to get the game shown on TV, um, on the major broadcasters, the easier it's been to um, build the attendances because you've got a generally more receptive um, audience towards women and their place in society generally. So the more progressive society is, towards women generally, the more progressive and welcoming of women's football is. So I think it's no accident that we've seen, you know, in recent years, the huge success of the 2019 World Cup, the huge success of the Euros in England in the summer, just gone. Um, that has all gone hand in hand with 
a, a real shift, I would say, generally in attitudes towards women um, and their place in the world and, you know, kind of all of the ideas of, um, of, of gender equality generally, of pay equity generally, of all those conversations, they all happen within football and they all impact football because um, if society is more receptive to women generally, it's more receptive to women's football generally. Mm. And the, the current you know, generation of players, how much do they take this on? Because I noticed after the Lionesses won uh, Euro 22, I think they wrote a letter to the two prospective people who were to become the next prime minister of England and of the UK, pardon me, and saying, hey, we're, we still have a, a country where more than one in three girls can't play soccer in their phys physical education classes. So I did wonder how much do the players, I mean, it's challenging enough to play this game, but how much they're willing to take on, you know, being advocates for, for you know, all girls and women to be able to play soccer and, and do sports. Yeah, and I think I say in the book that like sort of almost every player that women player, female player that plays football is almost innately an activist, right? Even if they don't consciously think it because the very act of playing is um, in essentially in defiance of what is expected of, uh, of women in society generally, or has been for a very long time at least, it's shifting, but generally it's, it's not necessarily seen as normal for a girl to be interested in football and want to want to play or soccer. Um, and so it's, you know, because it's difficult for, for girls to play, it means that, um, the, you know, the, the very act of doing it is is a rebellion and, and makes you almost an activist by default. But then you've got this layer of players that have almost, like, recognised that and are, like, over, overtly using their voice and their platform um, and the growth of the game um, and the, the platform that that growth of the game has given them to speak out on a number of other issues. So you've got, obviously, Megan Rapinoe is, the, is, like, the biggest and best example in the US, right? Like... Um, using her voice on LGBTQ rights issues, on human rights issues, on uh, equal pay, all of those things. Um, and then you've got Ada Hegerberg in Norway uh, basically boycotting the national team for five years in protest at the, at the way uh, women's football is invested in and supported in the country that she doesn't play in anymore um, on a domestic level. She plays in France. But, uh, you know, to basically say that Norway needs to up its game um, and so it, it was sort of sort of semi-surprising that um, that we saw the England players uh, take the stand that they did after the Euros final because um, I'd say in England we've been a little bit behind uh, in terms of having that sort of activist voice active, active activist voice uh, within uh, English women's football I think it's almost been a little bit of a get you know just just take what you're given stay quiet and and you know kind of we'll keep pushing quietly in the background but um it's great that we can do this kind of thing and not really a we have a right to this we can demand it. and i think the euros was a bit of shift in that because winning the euros felt like a little stamp of authority um on that team and and those players and their right to play and i think it shifted their mentality a little bit to be able to go right we've delivered now now it's time that, that that the country and football delivers for us and delivers for every little girl that wants to play because we've shown that if you invest in this um, and 
and support it there, there's huge huge benefits both for the country generally for football generally but also for for just girls and their their health and their mental well-being and their confidence and all of those kind of things so that was quite new for us and um it was really great because it was lot of moy who who sort of it was her idea she floated it on the bus from trafalgar square after the big post euro celebration the day after the final uh, and she's always been sort of very, very socially conscious player. But all the players were like, yes, we've got to do this. We've got to use this, this moment to demand more from the government. And that's uh, that's really great. And I, like, like I say, I think that speaks to, again, all of these different things, Me Too, but, you know, the, like I say, the battle for equal pay and uh, and gender, gender equality more generally on, you know, the Iranian women fighting just for the right to watch football, let alone play it. Um, and all of these things sort of tie in and bounce off each other and feed off each other and fuel each other. Um, and we saw a little bit of that with, with England after the Euros, which was very refreshing, I would say, from an English football point of view, because we've not really seen it quite so overt. How did men's soccer push the women's game forward? And I asked this specifically in reading in your book about the 1966 World Cup won by England at home, the 1971 FA Cup in relation to, I think it's Patricia Gray and the Women's Football Association, and then also Arsenal um, and and their kind of spearheading uh, the women's game. Arsenal's, uh, you know, Ar- the Arsenal, and I'm not going to say the men's team, but, you know, Arsenal spearheading women, the women's game. Yeah, no, um there have been some real pioneers over the years, particularly when you look at sort of early teams. I mean, even when you go back into the 1920s, Dick Kerr ladies, it was really, um, you know, one of the guy, one of the managers working in the factory, looking out the window going, um, Alfred Franklin's going, hang on, I think we've, we've got something here. Let's, let's get these girls together and, and put together a team and, mm-hmm. and set up a, a game against a, a, a rival thing. So there's always been, um, like progressive men bucking the trend but not just because they're progressive and they think women should be able to play football but because they see an opportunity there right. like financially or like reputation wise that, that could be good for them too um the the 66 world cup was um you know hugely influential in that it, it exposed a whole generation to success at football and it made everyone want to play it made little boys and girls want to play mm. um and that was that was really important and then uh yeah pat gregory who um uh was was inspired by watching spurs um as a child and going to watch them sort of in the 70s and 60s 70s and 80s um like saw success felt it felt the joy it brings was engulfed in the the sort of the mood of the nation for want of a better (laughs) nicer phrase it's a bit cheesy Mm. um and wanted to be a part of it and that's really important is like it's really fun to watch football it's really fun to and to play it and to feel a part of something and like this particularly today there's very few outlets for collective displays of emotion um and it's it's a really special feeling when you're in a ground of any sport um, and your team is winning and, you know, you just end up hugging the person next to you when there's a goal or whatever it may be, um, who, who you've never met before, but you're just like jumping around in absolute euphoria with everyone else. And that there's something really quite special about that collective feeling and thinking. And so when, you know, people like Pat Gregory are exposed to, you know, Spurs winning the FA Cup multiple times um, or, you know, 
or just girls generally being exposed to the 66 World Cup win, um, that has a huge impact because it gets girls thinking, I want to do this too. I want to be a part of this in the same way it does little boys. So, so right now, I mean, it, it, would an example be? Um, obviously, England has is not going to win the World Cup. We know that already. But is do they go in concert? Like, do you think now we'll get to that point where you know little boys can watch, you know, whatever country they're they're into or from? Uh, and if it's a women's World Cup and their success there for the side they're rooting for, they will get drawn to soccer. And likewise for the for the for young girls watching the men. You know, do you think it's all can be one thing? A hundred percent. I mean, the, the amount of little boys at, um, at the games during the Euros was phenomenal. Um, and men, just like grown men, not with their kids, just going to watch the games because it was football that was on telly and like in grounds local to them, um, just going to the pub or going into the ground to watch those games that were affordable um, because it was football and it was good football. Um, it's huge. I, I mean, I was took my son to the premiere of the new Lionesses film, which is about the Euros, turned around very, very quickly um, yesterday evening. And we came out and we're walking home. And he turned to me and he said, he's nine, he said, Mum, who's your favourite footballer? And I went, oh, men's or women's? He went, women's. And I was like, oh, well, we've got a few. And he <laughs> said, I think mine is Jill Scott. And I was like, oh, great. <laughs> and he's, you know, nine-year-old boy, you know. He's not watched much men's football. He's watched way more women's football, partly, obviously, because of my job. But he, you know, my husband uh, and me are both into men's football. I'm an Arsenal fan. He's a Man United fan. We watch a lot of Premier League. We watch a lot of, you know, the World Cup and stuff. He's around it. But he's gravitated towards women's game because he has got to know some of the players from watching them in stadiums and on TV and Jill Scott and I'm a celebrity, get me out of here and things like that. <laughs> and has fallen a little bit in love with like the the success of the Lionesses. Um, you know, he got, he was at the final, he got to see an England team win. There's, there's very few people <laughs> around that can say they've done that live right. in a stadium. Um, so, you know, yeah, it, it it's hugely inspiring, I think, for, for boys and girls to see uh, the success of the England women's team and likewise it, it's it it's different for girls watching men's football because previously you know they'd be watching it without having had uh, like a women's right. alternative to look up to at all either you know when I was growing up I was lucky because I, I actually grew up quite near to where well across the road from where Arsenal women were training at one stage when uh, women were training one stage when I was quite young but that that was by far from the norm. Um, mostly, it was, um, you know, all you saw was men's football. So that was all you knew. Now you can enjoy men's football in the full knowledge that you have every right to play it and can play it, and that women do play it and earn money from it and can be professional. And so you've got a different relationship to men's football as well as with this fantastic women's team that is just so so likable as well. Hmm. And uh, so, is he looking from the still from the present day to when I guess seeds were planted a half century ago. How catalytic was the U.S. law Title IX to the global growth of uh, women's football? And, and what has the U.S. maybe imparted to England about, about player development? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I just I struggle to um, overstate the importance of, of, of Title IX to the growth of women's football like across the world. And like I mean, it's one of the main, I think I may say it at the end of the book, I can't remember if I do or not, but um, I, like one of the, the biggest things that, that I've said a lot in articles and stuff is that finding a way to have versions of Title IX in countries 
all over the world is the key to the development of women's football because it's such a such a game changer in the way women look at their rights um, to play sport and their relationship to sport. And I think it's no accident that so many of the US women's national team players have been so outspoken on so many different issues and have been such fighters um, at the forefront of, uh, of so many different issues because they have grown up in a system that has told them they deserve to be there, that they are by law <laughs> entitled to um, a certain level of funding to equality even if it's you know not always perfectly implemented and stuff with uh with men at college level sports and i i think that the impact of that on the psyche of of young women in that system can't be can't be underestimated because it, it, it makes them feel like they matter they belong they're valued as much as the men um and that society recognizes that it's not just you know, football. It's not just the FA or whatever it may be. It's the US Soccer Federation, uh, US, uh, USSF. It's it's the whole the whole of society saying, the whole of government saying, this is your place. You have a right to be there, and we are going to fund it equally. That is in, invaluable. Um, and then not only that, because you've got this huge investment into women's sport at college level and uh, and high school level in the states. Um, which you know means that women's uh, women's uh, sporting programs are funded to the level that the men's ones are. You've got the a, a lot of money going in, and because you know colleges have to match that funding up. You know if they've got a fantastically good uh, like American football team that is really really well invested in, they've got to find a way to invest similar or the same in women's programs and that means you get these huge new player pools you've got scholarship opportunities you've got um just a level of player development that is beyond anything any other country has i mean we don't have that we don't have like university we have university sport in england but we don't have it to that extent it's not competitive enough like it's not um it's not a breeding ground for players of the future whereas you get and well less so now but you you've had for a very long time players in the states going straight from college into uh the u.s women's national team you still get players going straight from college into um you know the first teams and the first team squads uh, and, and top tier teams in europe and in the u.s in the nwsl but you don't um you don't get that here you don't get players going oh i've played for university of oxford and now i'm going to go and play for arsenal there's just not that culture of, of college sport in the same way there's not a player pool like that so you're relying on the academy systems of clubs um and that's very different because it's not as uh, as not as huge it's not as embedded in society it's not as generalized um and you don't get that like we belong uh, and we deserve this this money and this funding in the way that 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 the U.S. have. Yes, of course. Title IX, uh, just for the reader or for the listener, <laughs> uh, prohibits uh, sex-based discrimination in any school or any other education program. A uh, good book on uh, how American colleges, you know, work that out to 
you know, accommodate King of Football, the one with the pointy ball and the helmets and the pads, <laughs> uh, is a billion-dollar ball by uh, Gilbert Gall. It's uh, it's an interesting read about, about how the accountancy of all that works. Uh, Susie, I think experience teaches us that, you know, popular sports, they, you know, once they reach that a certain height, they get corporatized. But what to you, what does the different path for the women's game that might help it avoid that as much as possible look like? Yeah, it's a good question because I think that's the, the biggest issue facing like i'd say women's football is a bit of a like a juncture um of where it's going to go and what it what it wants to be in that i think generally there is a drive to make it like the men's game and you know like the women's super league in england to make the women's super league a bit like the premier league with premier league named teams in there and uh you know kind of the big clubs funding their women's teams to to have them competing in that league and things um and i don't think that's necessarily good or healthy for the game because there's a lot to like about men's football obviously it's you know kind of great to watch hugely competitive um although you know less so the more money goes into the very very top um but there's also a lot to dislike um you know there's a lot of uh, ownership issues you know there's a lot of unsavory sponsorship deals um you know there's a lot of extortionate wages uh, you know the kind of levels of money that some of the best players in the world are on it is is just obscene to like to most ordinary people um and women's football has an opportunity to be something a little bit better you know football is a sport that was born out of working class communities in england out of factories out of um out of some some colleges but mostly out of various factories you know asked out of ammunitions factories uh say the dicker ladies team was born out of a uh a munitions factory during the war um man united from the railways in lancashire um so it's basically lost its soul a little bit i would say um in sort of recent decades um you know there's a real disconnect between premier league clubs and the communities that birth them um there's not really you know clubs do quite a lot of community work and things like that but there's not really um a view that they are an asset for the local community in the same way that they were um you know kind of relieving the the stresses and providing an outlet for emotion and feeling and joy for people that live locally and that kind of stuff and um and giving fans an opportunity to be a part of something that they can actually make decisions for and being basically embedded in their communities in the way that they should be that's sort of completely gone whereas on the women's side we've got a real opportunity to kind of look at though all of those different things and say well, actually, do we want that for women's football? You know, do we want women's football to have the obscene wages? We want players to be able to earn a living and to have a pension and to not have to work after they've retired or, you know, kind of have a side hustle all their lives and all that kind of stuff. We want all of that for them. But does it need, do we need to get to the, the extent where they're earning 400, 500,000 pounds a week? Um, do, you know, or do we want it to filter through the system a bit more fairly and evenly? Um, do we want teams to have, a lot of money pumped into the very, very top um, best teams and not so much into the bottom. So you end up with sort of almost like two tier leagues. Um, 
and the haves and have nots like or do we want to find a way where investment is sort of spread more equally across them do we want to um do we want to accept money for sponsorship from you know betting companies or you know like um oil rich nations and things like that (laughs) that have questionable human rights and women's rights records um they're all questions that i think the women's game is like going to be grappling with very 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 quickly um because there's so many questions about the development of some of these leagues that's my watch (laughs) there's so many so many questions about the development of these leagues and what um you know kind of what kind of path they take and and how money trickles down and how these new broadcast broad broad how these new broadcasting deals um, send money through the system um, and how the sponsorship deals are spread and how the prize monies are distributed from competing in major tournaments and all of that, that are going to sort of pose these questions. And I would argue that we should try and keep women's football as, uh, you know, kind of very much community-focused sport um, that aims to grow it in a much sort of more sustainable organic fair way um where people can make a living out of it but where its focus is giving back and growing the game across the board and providing opportunities for girls and women to play at all ages across like all areas of society if that's what they want to do um and uses its power as a as a growing developing force for um intervening on important women's issues um facing women around the world that that it can have an impact on um so for me that's that's the fight <laughs> um whether it goes that way is another thing i think it, you know it's highly likely that it follows the route of the men's game because um you know if you want investment into women's football it's likely to come from the men's game and the men's game doesn't necessarily want women's football to show that there is another way of doing things and potentially a better way of doing things that they aren't doing because that uh, undermines the the system that has been built up around men's football that that has positioned it as like the be all and end all this is how football should be this is the elite this is the pinnacle of the the biggest sport in the world um and there is no other way of doing things so that's the question really is like you know kind of can it can it maintain its identity um and be something better when you've got that up against this beast that needs feeding so so that's the crit because at the end of the book in your manifesto the chapter that starts off as a manifesto it's you you write in countries where it is the strongest women's football is now at a critical juncture Mm -hmm. so is that that's the juncture you've just spoken of i'm 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 imagining yeah completely um you know this this I say I say it's at this moment in time is because this is the moment in time where a lot of decisions are being made about the future of leagues. You know, the NWSL has split away from uh, the USSF in the States. Uh, the Women's Super League is on the cusp of splitting away from the FA or at least being set up as an independent company that will still be part run by the FA as a move towards independence. So you're getting these um, like leagues sort of becoming independent entities where they've got a you know, they're going to have um, private finance coming in wanting to take a right. stake um, or they're going to have, um, you know, a big like investors coming in wanting to have a piece of the pie or they're going to get, you know, La Liga or 
the Premier League coming in saying, look, we can run this and we'll put a load of money into it and uh, we'll run it alongside the men's league. Um, and it's are any of those things the right thing to do? I don't know. Um, but that's the sort of juncture we're at where those kind of decisions are being made and those kind of questions are being asked because the game is growing and suddenly people are looking to it with a little bit more interest. There was, speaking of the interest, there was an announcement last week, which I'm sure you've heard of. Uh, now, for those that will be listening to this podcast much you know, further down the line, we'll say early December 2022, um, there was an uh, announcement uh, by Diana Matheson, who uh, has uh, played for the Canadian national team, won a couple of, a couple of Olympic medals. Um, and she's trying, she's part, she's the co-founder of Project 8, and they're trying to kick off a domestic league here in Canada by 2025. So... What is the importance of having a domestic league? And I ask you that because there's a very interesting point in your narrative about Katie Brazier and the Dutch women winning the Euro in 2017 without a domestic league. Yeah, so, I mean, well, they had a domestic league, but it, it's very, very, very small um, and okay. not professional. And uh, most of the Dutch women's national team play in other countries. And there's benefits to that in that, like, um, you know, if you have your players playing all over the world in some of the best leagues in the world, they are learning all kinds of different styles of football, different ways of playing. Um, you know, you've got a great, um, great kind of breadth of of experience there. But I, I think the most important thing about having a domestic league is you're building the audience for the game in your country. So right. Canada having a league. I mean, at the moment, how do Canadian women's soccer fans watch women's soccer. They've got to go online and they've got to watch their players play primarily in the NWSL. Right. In, you know, the Women's Super League or in France. But there's, there's, right. there's nowhere for them to go to watch games on the regular, right? So how mm. do you build that audience for the national team? And how do you build that sort of... Um, how do you develop the Canadian women's national team if you've not got little girls able to go and watch their players or some players play week in week out local to them and instead are you know i if they have, they have to be really dedicated dedicated enough to find the right stream or the right channel showing the game that they want to see um abroad to watch it like there's no like mm-hmm. fan culture there that is going to give them the atmosphere that makes them feel like yeah i want to play this sport this i want to do this right there's no route for them to professionalism to think this is something i could do for the rest of my life this is something that i could um really enjoy and so you're shrinking your player pool because you're not you're not building up um like a real massive fan base of of kids that that want to play it week in week out and be like their stars and and stuff so for, for me it's like not having a league is massively holding back the opportunity for girls to be able to play um football soccer um uh, grassroots level not because there's not necessarily the access but because there's not the visibility and there's not the like you go to any women's super league game and you will see teams of little girls in the stands of those games or Mm. being um like for want of a less a better gendered word ball boys around the edge um like helping out at the game and they're in their they're in their kits. They've you know they've been playing that morning, or they've they've just decided to proudly show up in their kits from their little local team that they play in, and they're there watching 
the you know the Arsenal women match or the Chelsea women match or whatever or the Brighton game or whatever it may be um, as their team um, and being inspired by that week in week out and that that opportunity just doesn't exist if you're um, if you're playing in a country where you don't have uh, a proper professional league you know you don't have a pathway for development um, and so you end up with some good players that fight through that system and you know take the leap of traveling when you're quite young to foreign countries to play in um professional leagues or in colleges um and having to study away from your your home and your family and everything you know but why should that have to be a decision that that any canadian girl wants to make like has to make if that's what they want to do right. why shouldn't they be able to play on their doorstep with their family nearby and uh, an an opportunity for a professional pathway in the country that they want to represent like that for me is it's massive and it's like exciting it's really for me like you look at the Canadian I was the only um, journalist out at written journalist out at the um, Olympics in Tokyo covering the England women's national team um from start to finish and i say the england women's national team that's really wrong team gb um right. at the olympics um so i was there for every every one of the team gb games and then because uh, team gb were in the same group as canada i also saw most of the canada games and then followed canada all the way to the final as well uh, i was the only written journalist sat in Bev Priestman's press conferences um, around that. There were no Canadian journalists there covering the women's national team, despite the fact that they went on to win gold uh, yeah. really, really against the run of play. So there's like a huge gap there. Um, right. you know, the fact that you're the only, like I was literally sat in the press conference room. There were a few on Zoom, but I was the only person sat in the room, like ahead of the final with, um, I can't remember who it was ahead of the final. It was Bev Priestman, and it was either uh, Christine Sinclair or there'd be Jesse Fleming up there or whoever right. it may be. And I'm sat there asking them questions as a journalist that's out there to cover Team GB, um, who's then converted to covering just you know the end right. of the women's football tournament after um, after Team GB have gone out. And, uh, and and I was a little bit staggered that there was no one else there apart from broadcasters. Um, and then it was only CBC, and that's it. Um, right. So there's a like massive gap in coverage and you only get that coverage if there's the sport being put on a plate for you to cover you know what 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 i find interesting and just what you what you're talking about there it just got me thinking was it's it's funny how you know with men's football you started having this you know these leagues you know they sprung up whatever i know the premiership or sorry the first division in england started in 1888 so that kind of or arises organically and by 1930 then you're 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 testing your best against the world in women's soccer it's almost gone the other way you know because they're you know you look at canada who's won an olympic gold but they're still looking for that league you know so it's it's almost the opposite yeah totally and the thing is is like i think one of the the biggest issues that the women's football has just like everywhere is that whenever anyone talks about investing in it and <laughs> whenever a player or or a journalist or whatever it may be says no we need to invest in this right like we need to put some money into this take some money from the men's game stick it into the women's let's invest in it it will grow it's very much like well 
you know, once the women's game is making as much money as the men's game, then then it de- deserves being invested. It's like no, no, no. <laughs> Business one hundred and one, right? Like you have to Im- like speculate to accumulate. You have to put money into something for it to grow. That's like the most basic <laughs> business level there is. Um, and you know the idea that you wouldn't like try and invest in something that is clearly doing so well i remember the fa years ago in england that's like four or five years ago saying that their biggest return on their investment pound for pound of everything they put money into was on women's football like there is a demand there there, there is a return available there and mm. all you have to do is is put into it and that's the biggest hurdle that i think a lot of teams and leagues have to get over is this idea that wait a minute you know this <laughs> this is something that we should be investing in but also like the men's game didn't just leap up from nowhere without it didn't grow up organ- completely organically it didn't right. just spring out of the ground and then suddenly journalists went and started covering it it was very much a reciprocal relationship right like papers and right. stuff when the men's game was growing in england recognized that this if they built this sport and this sport will sell papers and the sport recognized we need the papers to tell people that these games are happening and how they're happening and get them interested and tell them the stories around it that make them want to come to grow the game so it's like real reciprocal relationship that builds it together and then you've got investment as well going into that to help do that too and that's how you build and it's got to be a whole load of like people singing from the same hymn sheet all at the same time the media the clubs the federations like all kind of invested in that narrative of growth and that it deserves it um for for things to come together in the right way for me and and to what extent is uh does it help that you know writers such as yourself are looking at it you know with a you know an active you know critical lens and saying hey this is big time so let's you know look at the look at areas where it needs to you know step up i guess yeah i think that's like one of the most important things is there has been a tendency to just be cheerleaders and to not want to criticize because you don't want to damage it right you don't want to damage the sport so like you highlight um a goalkeeper error or a refereeing mistake that's been particularly bad for the most minimal of examples or you highlight an abuse case for like one of the more extreme examples and the the immediate impact is that or the immediate view is that that could be damaging for the sport right that could set it back but like you've got a bigger picture like how do we improve those things it's by questioning them it's by demanding better it's by putting in safeguarding protocols that are going to protect players long term in the case of abuse it's by investing in full-time referees and referee um and refereeing training and all of those kind of things in the case of bad refereeing decisions and you only get those things happening if you're being critical and if you're like picking apart the decisions that are being made at the top and where the money's being put and all of those kind of things so like that for me is like a real real critical part of growing the game is being able to tear it apart and say no mm. this is like there's a lot of there's a lot of great in this game there's a lot of things to love but there's a lot of things that need work and if things aren't done it's not going to develop in the right way and there are going to be problems and that's that's huge i like i think it's but- a real real critical point and that's true. That's true journalism, true too, too right? Because you'd want to see the the league grow just as much as anyone, probably more than a lot of people. But you have to, you have to be objective. 
yeah totally and like you know I, I've, I, I don't hide I've never tried to hide my allegiance I'm a massive Arsenal fan right like <laughs> criticising my own club not particularly fun but like I recognise yeah, there's been a lot I... to criticise them on before this year <laughs> yeah I mean at the moment it's all going great for both the men's and women's teams which is one of the nicest places to be in but you've got to you've got to criticise like how do Arsenal do things better, like of the women's team? There, there were a couple of years where, where, like recently, where the women's team was really st- slipping behind um, Chelsea, City, and Man United. Not investing enough, not buying the right players, or or buying en- enough, spending enough on players. Um, Buddy there. Not enough backroom staff, that oh. kind of stuff. You've got to pull those things out. You've got to say no, this isn't good enough, to encourage them to do better and to pull pull fans attention to it as well to demand better for their team and, and Susie I wanted to ask on a personal level you described uh, balking a little when Max Edwards a literary agent approached you about writing a popular history of women's football so how did you sort out the how will I take this on be, be present in my current writing obligation and as a parent and as a colleague and and do the and do the job here if, if not necessarily in that order with great difficulty um, and it's something I still struggle with um no like I I hated every moment of writing the book um I like it now it's written but honestly like, it was the bane of my life for a couple of years and uh COVID delaying it didn't help because that pushed the euros back which was what our publication aim was um and so I, I mean I got an extra year of writing but I also got an extra year of pain um and it I mean it was hard as well with COVID with you know like lockdown meaning the archives were shut and the national football museum i couldn't get to and you know, all these places you know at most of the research had to be online and interviews over zoom and that kind of stuff which is super frustrating but um yeah it was really hard to juggle um i don't regret doing it um but i think i was right to balk in the like i i rightly guessed that it was going to be a lot of work and it was it was a lot harder than, than i thought i think i needed my hand holding a little bit more throughout it as well it's quite um quite an intense process if you've never done something like that before you know i didn't study english or journalism at university i did architecture so i'm, I'm used to drawing not not necessarily writing like reams and reams and reams um oh. so it's um it was definitely a new thing but i'm now writing books three and four so clearly it like it didn't put me off enough to say no <laughs> um and yeah like it, it it's it's a real real grueling but rewarding process like because it's I, I get when i'm writing an article right like i write a lot of articles and you know three or four per week minimum and it, each one you you get a huge you don't necessarily enjoy writing them but you get a huge sort of like sort of sense of relief reward when it's actually done and it's published and that's a good feeling and then you work on a book for two and a half, three years, and that feeling is, like, magnified hugely. Right. Um, basically, like, that feeling on just an exponential level. Um, and, yeah, having it sat on the shelf is, is like, real special, um, especially seeing it translated into Japanese and stuff, too, is just slightly <laughs> mind-blowing, um, which is probably why I'm putting myself through it again three times. <laughs> but um, it's yeah it's definitely not for everyone and i would still say it's probably not for me but like <laughs> see value in it as well labor of love Go yeah ahead, how, how much say did you get in the uh, covers of the uk and us editions because 
both of them have American players on the cover, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah, no, I was like, um, when I when I first started Amal Max, actually, like very early on, he was like, you'll hate the cover and you won't have much say over it. Um, and I was like, okay, well, I, like, like I say, having studied architecture at university, I come from a, a pretty strong design background. I actually worked as a graphic designer for a bit, so I'm going to really struggle on that one, but I'll take it. Uh, the first cover designs um, for the UK edition, I hated. Um, like real, like was sort of head in hands. There's no way I can have my name on this book. Uh, they didn't <laughs> have. Uh, they had just a sort of generic player on it. It wasn't anyone particular. So then, when this one dropped with uh, Brandy Chastain on the front, um, I, I just loved it. I thought it's just it was such an improvement on. I, I think maybe even they 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 were dummies, so that they would it would mean that I fell in love with whatever they put put forward afterwards, because uh, the first three were so bad that I was just you know so relieved when I saw this one. Um, and the US edition, um, yeah, like that was just entirely them, and I really liked it from the off. I like the color, I like the picture, I get it. Um, and we're actually doing a, an update of the. Um, uh, UK edition to include a chapter on the Euros for which should be out sort of next summer-ish which by that point it may need a chapter on the World Cup as well <laughs> but uh, but actually we're updating the picture on the front to be um, Chloe Kelly celebrating her goal in similar fashion um, in the Euros final with her shirt off um, and swinging it around her head in her sports bra um, and it, 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 it's, it was almost like it was made for it um, because it's like a straight swap picture and it almost looks like it fits even better. And it's almost like the key defining moment of women's football then in 99 and the key defiant for the US and then the key defining moment, um, the, the England's moment uh, like that happening on, uh, on home soil in a similar fashion just mm -hmm. like fits just so perfectly with with the, with the cover of the book and the new cover so uh yeah quite lucky because like, i really liked the design the eventual designs of the uk one and the and the um like the us one straight away i thought it was really really nice nice looking thing <laughs> of course chloe kelly scored the the goal in the euro 22 women women's final now we understand you have two more book projects going we we don't expect you to scoop yourself but what can you relate to us about you know what you're work, working on with the, those susie yeah so i've actually one is uh so I'm, i've done one i'm working on two at the moment but there's one that's already done that was actually going to be out in october but that's been pushed back a year because there was some foreign rights interest uh that they're pursuing um but that's a a sort of bit more of a coffee table book 50 great sports women um all sports not just football uh sort of illustrated and i've done the words to go with the illustrations so like i mean so many people in there from all over the world um you know, lots of americans in there um Christine canadians Spurs is in there um you've oh, got nice. uh yeah you've got um who else i've got ada hagerberg in there you've got the first woman basketball uh first black woman baseball player in there the um the likes of Billie Jean King uh the likes of our oh, names escape, escape me there's so many um the the blue girl the Iranian woman who set fire to herself um because she was arrested for after trying to watch a men's football game like real like key women in sporting history um book so that's like out sort of next October 
and then the two that the two others that I'm working on currently one is with Khalida Popow who um, I worked with on the exposure of the abuse of the Afghanistan women's national team um, in 2018 uh, at the hands of the president of the Afghanistan Football Federation who was eventually banned uh, for life from football and it's writing her story um, she founded the team was the first woman um, to work for the Afghanistan Football Federation she helped expose the abuse case while she was living in exile in Denmark. She uh, led the evacuations of players from the country last summer 2021 when uh, Afghanistan fell to the Taliban. She's evacuated more than, with the help of others, more than 200 uh, women athletes and people around them from, from the country. Um, and yes, yeah, so I'm writing her book, which is pretty special. I've got a, you know, kind of very long-lasting relationship with her, and really have lived a lot of her story um, in recent years. Yeah. And so I'm really, really privileged to be writing that book. And then the other one is Top Secret, but it is very <laughs> exciting, and it is a kids' book, um, and based on. Uh, similar similar to a, a kid's book that was done with a male player that I am doing something similar with a women's player and that's probably about as much as I can say about it without being shot by the publisher <laughs> well what I mean one of the questions I do like to ask and we just got a, a couple more is you know this is your first book um so what have you learned like about you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about the economics of soccer and, and that type of thing. What about the economics of writing a book and getting a deal and being a first-time author? And how did how did you navigate that? And what was that like from the inside? Yeah, I mean, I was really lucky in that Max, who approached me, who you mentioned earlier, um, who's my agent, is great. Like, he was, I think I was like his fifth client or something. So he was quite, he's quite young. He's quite new to the game. And uh, he's a fantastic literary agent and he has really held my hand through it all and has taken care of all the financing and uh, all of the deals and the bidding process. So there were three, three publishers interested in a women's game. Um, and, you know, he, he dealt with all of that side of things and advised me on it and has been brilliant um, and taken care of it all. Um, in terms of like the logistics of writing it, I mean, it's a very new process in that, you know, I've never worked with a publishing house or an editor like in that way before. Um, I, I kind of wish that I had asked to have my hand held a little bit more through the process <laughs> of writing a woman's game because it was very, I, I struggle with very long deadlines is what I discovered. Um, you know, if I've got a very, very long deadline, I will put it off and put it off. Mm. Um, and you know, if I hit a brick wall, I'm really up against that brick wall for quite a while. Um, so with the two that I'm writing currently, the deadlines are, are really tight and that actually suits me. Um, right. because I, I like, I think it speaks to, my, like me as a day-to-day -day journalist i i respond well to the pressure of a short deadline um which is is weird um but it actually makes me get the work done um and not dwell on things too much and just push it out and, and that's the thing is like you can be too precious about words when you're writing a book and like really you just need to get any words on the page because the editing process will like you'll be able to refine it in that so instead of agonizing over a paragraph or the phrasing of something or how you open it or whatever it may be 
like just write any old crap down and then <laughs> you can go back and refine it later but like having something there on paper that so the book that i can't talk about um i filed the first chapter of that the other day and i wasn't totally happy with it um like i i think it's better than it was when i when i was first working on it um and this is sort of a resubmit and um I, I've definitely improved it, but I'm not totally happy with it still. But it's going through one more drafting, so it's kind of—it doesn't really matter. It just reached a point where I just needed to send it and have someone else look at it and say, "This is what will make it better." And like when I was working on a woman's game, there was a point at which I finished it and sent it in, and we had gone through all the edits, and I was like, "I hate this book. I think it's a terrible <laughs> book. I don't want my name on it. I don't like it." And I sat there and I was thinking, "What will make me like this book?" And I was like, "I wrote it in bits." I wrote the chapters sort of out of order and it was also edited that way because I sent it in that way so it came back at me in different parts. So I, I hadn't read it from start to finish and seen what it read like. Um, and so I I'm emailed the publisher and I was just like, look, can I just, I know we're really up against it deadline-wise, but can I just take three days just to slowly read through this um, and see if I like it? Um, <laughs> and, I, and I read it and I was like, wow okay they've done a really fantastic editing job here like it flows so much better than i thought it did um yeah it, it, it's got a good narrative it like because i was like sort of writing it so out of order you, you just sort of lose all concept of what it looks like as a completed thing um and i was so much happier after that so i'm trying like to not do all of the, all of those things I hated about the first book and didn't go quite right and I was you know kind of way too precious about words and all of that kind of stuff I'm trying to not do with books since then I'm trying to not be precious and recognizing that actually editors are there for a reason and they do a fantastic job and they know what they're doing and like every word I write is not precious and I should be much more flexible and um uh, and, and just send, just send it in uh, and just write, just write and write and write regardless of what's coming out um, because even if it doesn't make sense, you're going to go back, go back over it at least two more times anyway, so it doesn't really matter. We we, we sh it, It's well after midnight in, in, in London. So in snowy England. In snowy yes. England, yes. So um, not to take up too much more of your time, but I think... It, um, you know, we definitely should ask about um, the sudden passing of Grant Wall at the World oh, Cup, a fellow journalist. Um, and why was his journalism so important uh, to the women's game and to the sport as a whole? Oh, it's hard. It's hard to um, hard to to overstate his his significance to the growth of the game in in the US like not just the women's game but like I mean hugely the women's game but also the men's game too in that he a phenomenal journalist but just so so passionate about the sport and growing it and um and wanting it to have its day in the sun uh in the states and for people to fall in love with it and because he wanted people to fall in love with it so much because he loved it so much he just poured so much time and effort into telling the best stories and exposing the truths of the sport and like championing it in a way that no one has done and then he did that with the women's game too you know he was at everything um i um flew out in 2019 to interview megan rapino when she was the guardian women's player of the year and i i, I messaged grant and he was like 
come on down, come on down to the Sports Illustrated offices. Let's do a podcast. And I, I went down. He gave me a tour, and we sat down, and we did like uh, it was, the podcast is about an hour long but we were there for like an hour and a half two hours um, and it was all on the Afghanistan women's national team and the abuse case and stuff like that he really cared about those issues those bigger picture issues in the sport um, in a way that not many people of his stature did and he always had time for absolutely everyone every like young journalist aspiring he never made you feel like you were an outsider um, or like that that he was superior to you in any way despite the fact that he had been doing this for such a long time and was you know so incredibly experienced and talented he he made you feel like you were his equal at all times and it was real really really special um and he um he was over in the he was over in england like fairly recently back in uh, like late october when the us women's national team was over here to play england in a friendly at wembley and i gave him a lift back from uh, where the US Women's National Team were training and having a chat with him in the car. And he's like, just every time you chat with him, he, he just, he, you know, he chats to you like you're, you're an old friend and, and he's really genuinely interested and cares about the work you're doing and what you're doing. And that's the thing that I took from all of the tributes to him was so many people were like, he, he's just been so good to me. <laughs> um, mm. And then on top of that, you've got the, you know, this guy who has, like almost at times single-handedly pioneered the growth of soccer in the US. Um, it, it like just like an incredible legacy and just like devastating that, uh, well, A, that he's gone. But I mean, like you, you just, <laughs> what with the, um, the World Cup <laughs> next time round, uh, 2026 being held across um, the US, yeah. Canada and Mexico. And, and you know, he fought so hard for that and was was so desperate for it um and, and and knew what he could do for the sport that he loved and he's not going to be here for it and that's like completely devastating uh, because he was just you know so so critical to the point of it get it, it soccer in the u.s getting to the stage where it could bid for a tournament like that and and co-host it um so yeah like awful but just phenomenal phenomenal journalist and of course, there is the World Cup uh, next July in Australia and New Zealand. And we, we usually don't ask for predictions, but we're far enough far enough out, out from it. Uh, uh, Susie, uh, if I want to sound astute, who should I pick as my surprise team for the next Women's World Cup? And will Stenia Black Stenius of Arsenal in Sweden be the golden boot winner? <laughs> uh, good question. Um so it's always impossible to look past the US Women's National Team for winner of the tournament. Um, they're just so ruthlessly efficient when it comes to World Cups, but they are a team in transition. You know, the likes of Megan Rapinoe and Alex Morgan are aging and are on the way out. So there is a sort of like a moment now where there's an opportunity for a lot of other teams to uh, step up to the plate. Um, Obviously, I think England have a really, really good chance. Um, winning the Euros, I think, is a bit of a game changer. Once you've got over that hurdle of women winning a first major tournament, there's a real momentum to you and a real hunger and desire and a real belief that that you, you don't get anywhere else. I think Canada have that a little bit as well. Um, they're a really well-organised team. Bev Priestman is a fantastic manager. Um, I, I expect them to do quite well. Um, top scorer, oh, tough one. 
uh, always, always looking at um, Viviana Miedema for the Netherlands and Arsenal, <laughs> uh, probably above Stina. Although um, Sweden are a great team, they don't often score many goals. They're very defensively well organised, but they're, they're not necessarily a huge goal scoring team. Um, so, yeah, there's some exciting. What's great is it's, the, I would say, the most unpredictable, like, it, like this was the most unpredictable Euros we've had. This is the most unpredictable World Cup we've we've had, and that's great because that shows the game is developing and growing, and that the teams are getting closer and tighter together, which is cool. Susie Rack, thank you so much for joining us today on Sports Lit. It was a really insightful and fun conversation. Oh, I loved it. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, okay. thank you so much. Um,